Thanks, Liz. Um, so yes, if you looked at the sermon title, and if you were listening, as Liz was reading that scripture passage, we are going to talk about money today. Um, well, we're going to start with our pairing and sharing time, because I want to understand this rich young man, as he's commonly called, the rich young man's story with Jesus. So, if you look at the, there's two things you're going to need to do for your pairing and sharing. One is to look at the question in there, which I'll read in a second. But also, you may want to open up to the passage itself uh, to help you with the question. Um, so, it's on page 43 of the New Testament section of your pew Bible. Um, so, here's, here's, here's the question for you to talk about, have a conversation about. In the story of the rich young man, Imagine that you were with him on the day that he went and approached Jesus. Um, imagine you were his friend. And you watched him approach Jesus. Maybe you knew ahead of time he was going to do that. Maybe he talked to you about it. So he now walks away, we hear, shocked and grieving. Can you relate to how he's feeling? your friend, and talk to each other about why you think he was shocked and why he was grieving, and what would you say to him now that you've observed this encounter that he had with Jesus, what would you say to your friend to be helpful at this time? So that's, that's the area of conversation to have. So you have to have a little bit of an imagination. You went there with the rich young man, and... Uh, and, and now you've got to be a friend to him. You were a friend by going there and being with him. Maybe this was really hard for him to do. Um, maybe you've been thinking about it for a long time. Um, but now you're going to continue to be his friend. And so you're going to help him out a little bit. And have a con- listen to him and have a conversation. And so I want you to talk about an understanding of what it means that he was shocked and grieving. And how it is you would help him. So I invite you to break into pairs for a few minutes and have a little bit of conversation about that. Well, I hope you had some really good conversations uh, in your pairs. Um, the first line I wrote in to say to you was, Oh no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk about money. And as soon as I wrote that, I thought about so many occasions in my life. Um, uh, you know, I know myself and, and with my wife, we've made a number of decisions over the years, especially when the kids were growing up, about what to do with our money and how to spend it. And, um, you know, constantly hearing voices about you should save here and you should invest here and this is the real responsible way. Sometimes we'd have people over the house or we'd be at another gathering 
in the conversation we get to that and somebody would say, can you believe so-and-so and what they've done wasting their money that way or something? Don't they care about their kids or something? And my wife and I would be quietly sitting there saying, hmm, we did the same thing, but we don't want to talk about it. <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I think that um, maybe there's just, just so many things we know when it comes to talking about money. We, we know we made particular choices. And we know that, um, I, I think we know that we made some good choices for some very particular reasons. But we also know that others wouldn't agree with that or tell us we're irresponsible or whatever. But we also know we've made some choices just out of living that, yeah, if we sat down and analyzed it, maybe that wasn't the best thing to do. Um, but it's past now, and I really don't want to go over it again. You know, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people get to a certain point in life, and some of you are getting there or at that or even beyond where you can do anything more about it, where you're thinking about how to, you know, you got to save for retirement so you're not dependent on anybody else. And, and it doesn't always work out the way we hoped and the way we planned. And, and um, you know, it causes us to have all of this dynamic that we don't really have a lot of conversation about because we don't want to be challenged by somebody else, or maybe we do feel insecure about some things we've done. Who knows? Um, and then we apply a lot of our thinking when it comes to community choices. Sometimes that's in the political arena, but it can be in other ways as well, uh, in terms of who deserves what. And what do you have to do to deserve help, right, when you need help? You have to do a certain steps to go through before you get that. Or some people taking a hand out versus a hand up. And what's that going to do that's going to ruin them and their family? And what are their kids going to learn from that? We go through all of these things. And all of us, in one way or another, make some level of judgment of what's happening in our society um, and how we're overall doing. So it's not just in the individual people that we know. Um, and when you mix it up all together, um, it's a really unsettling and uncomfortable thing um, to talk about. Um, how many of you like to ask for money? Hold it, my, clean my glasses. Hold it, I have to clean my glasses. I couldn't see any hands there. I, I got a little... I got these new glasses where you have to... Uh, I have to use this special cloth or it really messes them up, so um, let me just see. Okay, let me try again. How many of you like to ask for money? Oh, I think they're clean now. Nobody! You know, I never really liked asking for money, but I've gotten in recent years involved with different kinds of organizations that I passionately um, believed in the causes of them, and I found out it got easier to ask for money. I, I still I have trouble getting started, but once I do it, when I really believe in it, um, it's, it, it's kind of amazing um, how energizing it can be at times. And then I also found there's weird people out there, they're complimented when you ask them for money. You know? Wow, you've asked me? Thank you for asking me. I'll see what I can do to help. Um, so that's another, another whole side of it that kind of 
fits into this whole thing. But um, uh, so I, I read this great little commentary about uh, this scripture passage we had today um, from uh, Sarah Hinlicky Wilson is her name. She is uh, the editor of what's called the Lutheran Forum. I guess it's a journal for. Lutherans that you can subscribe to. I suppose others could read it too, but it is called the Lutheran Journal. So, <clears throat> so, um, so she lists a number of what she calls time-honored strategies of management when you read this reading, so you, you so you can deal with it. Okay, so you can deal with it. So see what you think of these strategies. So the rich young man didn't actually keep the law, so the business about giving up his possessions was just a way of calling his bluff. Doesn't apply to me then. That's good. Or, nobody can actually keep the law, hence nobody can give up everything either. It's just a rhetorical device to call our bluff and once we grasp that, we're off the hook. Got that one? Okay, maybe you don't like this first two. Let's try another one that she comes up with. Giving up everything was a command to this particular rich young man, but only to him. It makes no claim on anyone else, uh, but it is an object lesson on, uh, on how you acquire things. So next one. It was a real command, but applies only to the rich. Anybody rich here? Aaron says he's rich. Good. Let's ask him for money later, okay? Um, all of us can think of someone richer, so by contrast, we don't qualify. So, another one. Then again, the disciples infer just the opposite. Everyone is rich, presumably because even the poor can think of someone poorer. Luckily, Jesus gives us the ultimate divine out. We can't do it. But God can, whew, off to the mall. Or, if we're still in the game at this point in the story, we can point to our paltry efforts at discipleship like Peter did, at which point we get rewarded with a hundredfold of everything. As long as we uh, somehow give up everything we've got, preferably in our hearts, you know, like detachment from material things as an act of spiritual self-will. We'll get something better in return. Invest a penny, earn a pound. Even those unnerving persecutions will lend us martyr rock status, rock star status. It's a brilliant act of hermeneutical contortion to get Jesus to sound like a prosperity preacher. All right. Are you good with any of those? We could do a vote on which ones you like the best. Yeah. So, I mean, the question is, what is Jesus really getting at here? So, let's just take a minute and go through the reading again. I'm going to give you some of my um, just on-the-spot thinking as we go through it, okay? Um, so, as Jesus was setting out on a journey... A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, first of all, I'm wondering what preparation this 
rich young man put into this? Was he planning this for weeks? Maybe you have this conversation if you were um, imagining that you were his friend. Maybe he talked to you ahead of time about this. Or was this an impulsive sort of thing that he did uh, in response to what was going on with him that day or whatever it might be? Um, but he, he's interested in inheriting eternal life. Now the first thing that Jesus does is to say, why do you call me good? So he's challenging the very structure of the question, you know, don't, don't uh, butter me up by calling me good, let's get to the real question here, because uh, good only belongs to God alone. Well, we could have a debate, well, isn't Jesus God, whatever, but, but the point is, um, as Jesus often does, um, he, he often either dismisses or reframes questions that are brought to him. And then what does Jesus do? He lists a number of the commandments of the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. And they're all not what you should not do. They're not what you should do. That was the first thing I noticed about it. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. You should not defraud. Um, then you do have a positive one. Honor your father and your mother. Hmm. I don't know if that's all going to be enough to get you in, to inherit um, eternal life. So the rich young man is a little bit maybe perplexed at this point, and so he has a follow-up comment. Teacher, I have kept all of these since my youth. See how good I am? And I want to go to a higher level. What more can I do? I've done really good at all the commandments so far. You must have one more for me. Um, so Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, if, if one of the things that is true about Mark's Gospel is that this is the only time that Jesus looked at anybody and, and, this, and Mark tells us that he loved him. It didn't happen anywhere else in Mark's Gospel. So what's going on here? Um, and he says you lack one thing. Go sell what you own, give it to the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So how does that settle in with you? I, I'm going to go back to this was, this was what, did, what did she say? Oh yes, this was only for this rich young man, or maybe it was only for rich people, and we're not rich, so we're okay. Um, am I really supposed to do this? How, what am I supposed to do with my money at this point? If I want to be faithful follower of Jesus, what do I do at this point? So, one of the things that often happens in church when they talk about money is um, you sometimes see it in things written around the offering or whatever. It's kind of like uh, you're supposed to give your money to God. Does anybody actually believe you're giving your money to God when you put it in the offering plate? In a way. In a way, right. But it, it, it also, I think, comes across as, um, you know, have a nice higher reason for giving so we can pay the bills in this church, right? There's, there's, a, there's a lot of lines you have to draw from putting it in that plate to its giving it to God, right? Um, 
for, for us practical people, it's it's um, it's a bit of a stretch, right? Um, but in a way, in that spiritual kind of way of letting go of possessions, which is one of the things that people talk about when they talk about um, this reading, is is those sort of things. So then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, now, I know this young man is talking about inheriting eternal life. But when you read all the Gospels about the kingdom of God, remember something. Don't make kingdom of God equal heaven that you might go to after you die. That may be part of it, but also the image that God has for us is that the kingdom of God can be realized right here in our midst if we just open ourselves to God's love. And we've talked about that here in this church before. So this whole thing that he's saying to his disciples now, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the experience of God's kingdom or sometimes we call it God's kingdom here, when we try to get away from kind of king imagery, um, here, on earth, in our midst. So money and being wealthy somehow affects our relationship with experiencing or entering into the kingdom of God, not just in the long term, but right here, in our midst as it's available to us. So, like the uh, rich young man who was um, shocked and grieved, he walked away shocked and grieved. And hopefully you had some good conversation about why he was shocked and why he was grieved. Um, but I think you can imagine. If, uh, if you're a homeowner, and the message you heard was you have to sell your house and give the money away for the profits of the house. If you really asked God in some way and that was the answer you got, might you be shocked and grieved? Those of us who come to church week in and week out, would that not just be a whole new and different way of thinking about the world and what it means to be a good person and what it means to be a follower of Jesus? This rich young man doesn't seem so, so odd after a while when you start to, to read this closely. It goes on in this passage and you get that eye of a needle getting a camel through the eye of the needle uh, imagery to talk about how complicated this sort of thing is. Um, and I think it applies to more than just money. But to be on the spiritual path is, um, is something that is going to cause us at some point to restructure every way we've learned to think about our lives and how to move forward. But today, I wanted to challenge us in how it is that we think about money. So, 
uh, Maury and Ginny and I went to a stewardship workshop that you helped send us to this summer, um, done by uh, the Lake Institute, a national organization funded through Lilly. Um, and we have, a, we have a book right here that has all kinds of stuff in it, and it talks a whole section on generosity, um, a whole section on theology of money, um, a whole section on the congregation and how to approach it in the congregation, a whole section on leadership and donors and members and fundraising as ministry and an implementation project. It's filled with statistics and research of how people give and why they give and what motivates them to give. And all of it's kind of really, really, really good. Um, but if we're going to do something around money, um, and we're going to do something in the church about money, um, we have to find a way to be like the rich young man, to... to we have to find a way to allow ourselves to be challenged. First of all, to ask the question. We don't know. When Aaron and I were talking, um, he thinks possibly the rich young man later on, after he got over being grieving and shocked, we thought maybe he came around. Maybe he did sell everything. Um, but it's going to require something major for us in our thinking about money, for us as a church, as we move forward into the future. Um, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? We know um, that we don't have a lot of money in this church. Does anybody think we're a rich church? No? Okay. Is anyone willing to ask other people for money to help our church? Stasia is. Thank you, Stasia. Appreciate that. Um, well, it goes back to um, if we're going to deal with money, we have to get into a com more comfortable relationship with what money is and what money does. And that could be a whole workshop. That's part of what this stewardship workshop is about. And we can't go into all of that right now, but we have to become more comfortable with money in our lives and the purpose of money in the church and what it means to have conversations about money and what it means to ask for money. Um, now, the question is, as you look at the first congregational United Church of Christ here in Colville, or as we affectionately call ourselves, Colville UCC, do we deserve to be here 5, 10, 20 years from now? Are we needed in Colville? Do you think we're needed? Who thinks we're needed in Colville? Oh. Good. I think we need a new call All right. For me, I wish it wasn't true, but we're a pretty unique voice in Colville. We we call ourselves progressive Christians here, and we can go into what all of that possibly means. But when it comes to um, a whole theology of understanding of how to read the Bible, when it comes to a whole understanding of how what we learn through science and how it informs how we both read the Bible and how we understand the world we live in and what our call, spiritual calling is. Um, when we talk about um, inclusivity for people who in other places and other churches are told 
They're being sinful for being who they are. Um, we are a unique voice in this town. Alright? Now, there's no way that our unique voice will be here. I mean, you see the numbers right now, right? There's no way our unique voice is going to be here someday in the future. I'm not going to name the number of years. Um, if we don't get comfortable with asking and inviting people to support who we are. There are people in this town, in this area, I should say, who um, I hear it all the time. Sometimes from you, in, so it's indirect, sometimes I hear it directly. It's like, I'm really not going into going to church, but I'm so glad your church is here. We need you. Well, maybe we should be asking some of those people, okay, maybe you don't want to be here on Sunday morning, let's have a conversation about that if you're willing to. Maybe you don't want to do something else in the church, but would you be willing to support us so that a church like ours can be here for a long time and be here to welcome those who need us for a long time to come in Colorado, Washington? Is that worth asking for? You know, is it? Um, but we have to deal with this money question first. We have to deal with how we deal with money in our own heads and our own hearts. And we have to deal with the differences we might have about managing money and responsibly using money. Um, and we have to talk to each other and give each other the courage to do what hardly any of you are comfortable in doing, which is asking for money. You know, traditionally, churches have some kind of weird things around money. Um, you know, I'll just speak to one little uncomfortable thing that I've never felt comfortable about. Used to be almost universally true in our kind of churches, and now is not as much true, but is still true here. You know, if you were the executive director of a nonprofit, food bank, whatever it might be, in a town like this or in Spokane, um, and you were hired to direct the organization and you were told that you couldn't know who donated to the organization or how much they donated, or you could never go ask somebody who you knew had the resources to be a major giver, you wouldn't take the job. But traditionally, pastors and churches have been told, you shouldn't know any of that information. Because you might treat somebody differently. But often a pastor is one of the people, doesn't need to be the only person, shouldn't be the only person, who has, can articulate with passion why a church is here. And yet, that person's crossed off the list. Now, it's interesting we went to the stewardship workshop because that question was asked, how many of your churches don't allow your pastor to know any of this? I was surprised. Two-thirds of the churches who came to that workshop allow their pastors to know that and actually expect their pastors 
to, uh, at the right moments with pastoral sensitivity, to sit down and talk to a member about, hey, we have this real need, and I know you've been generous before. Can you help with this? Um, and, and they do that um, sort of thing. And I'm not going to say which way is right or wrong. I have my opinion on the subject. But the point is, we need that conversation in this church. If we want to be here, if we believe that we're doing something important, if we believe we have a spiritual calling to provide something in this town, in this whole area, if we believe that, we have to find a way to ask people to support us. And we should also say, how can we support you? We, we need to, to say, can you support us? All the research shows a couple things. When you ask, when you ask for money is when you get money. If you don't ask for money, you don't get money. And I know from the organizations I've worked with where I've asked for money, that if you ask somebody who could give $1,000 for 100 guess what they give? They give 100 But if you ask somebody who can give $1,000 for 1000 guess what? They give 1000 and sometimes more. I don't know why that is. I'm not a psychologist around all of this sort of thing. I just know the research is clear on this. You know? You've all received the calls, you all get the mailings, right? You know? I'm really happy sometimes because there's so many organizations that mail to me when they say, well, we just want $5. Okay, I'll do $5. You know? But if they'd asked me for $25, maybe I'd give them $25. I don't know. Um, it's real quick on the five, though. Um, so, the rich young man. Jesus is challenging him to deal with what he's dealing with, with what he holds on to, what he has. We talk, we use a lot of language about the offering, with gifts we have, and we should share those gifts, we should have generosity, whatever. But that whole psychology of what we do with what we have, and who deserves to have something of what we have, and our ability in relationship with one another to ask, each other. Can you help? Or to go out in the community and ask those who value us. Can you support us? This is vitally important here and now. Not just because of what we can learn from what Jesus says to the rich young man. But because of the very practical reality that a progressive spiritual voice is critical to keep alive in Colville and in this region. And we're losing them. You know, if you take the whole region, uh, the Medellin Falls Church, after Tara Lining goes leaves, they probably won't have a church anymore. The Chihuahua Church, who we've met with, they're losing members. They're losing worship attendance. They're bigger than us, but they're losing that. You know? Um, what, what voices are going to be left in this town? And what do people deserve to hear from in terms of a voice that is a spiritual voice? And those who need us to be their allies. 
I have no idea what to ask you for. Other than to say, I mean, in terms of a dollar amount. But what I'm going to say is that individually, and we as a church, have to get much more focused and serious about what we're doing with money and how we're asking for people to support us. And we have to decide, are we worth it? Is this place worth it? If we don't think so, there's places around the country who need these pews. You know, we can donate them. You know, and that's the other things we have here. So dollars, God, me, us. What is worth it?